In the mountains, you sometimes get thunderstorms that form very rapidly, and that can block your access to your uh, emergency landing field. So you've got to have another one in the other direction to move away from the storm. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I am your host coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 66. Thank you for joining us once again here on Soaring the Sky. Another great guest coming up for you. I do want to give a quick thank you to our Patreon pilots, Brett Ross, Mitchell Thompson, and Ryan Trudeau. Thank you very much for contributing to the podcast and helping us bring you more great content if you'd like to help us out, you can do that at patreon.com slash soaringthesky. Another big help would be if you could get on to Apple Podcast and leave us a review. That helps the show out. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Our guest today, Bill Daniels, is a retired aerospace engineer who spent most of his career in the computer industry. He first flew gliders over 60 years ago from a winch. Since then, he has acquired more than 6,000 hours in the glider and another 6,000 in airplanes. He holds an FAI Diamond Badge and FAA pilot certificates for commercial glider and airplane multi-engine with an instrument rating. He has written extensively on winch launches with many articles published in Soaring Magazine. Today he shares his journey on Soaring the Sky. Bill Daniels, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy to have you today. How are you? Just fine. Thank you for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Where are you flying out of? Well, most recently at Boulder, Colorado. It's a municipal airport with one runway. It actually has a grass strip parallel to the main runway and a narrow asphalt strip for take glider takeoffs to the side. But it's a fairly constricted area with a lot of activity. So, you know, on a busy Sunday afternoon, it can get fairly hectic, especially if you get a gravity storm with everybody coming back at the same time. There's limited uh, space on the ground. But it's also up against the eastern foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And the good lift is quite a ways back, 10 to 15 miles west up over the higher country. So it takes fairly long toes to get out of there. Uh, typical boulder is just about 5,300 feet, and you're typically towing to 11,000 or 11 or 12,000 to contact lift back over the mountains. Then it's very good, but that's a very long, expensive tow. Now, you are known as Bill the Winch Guy, so can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, I first started with winches back in about 1960 in Southern California with the Orange County Soaring Association and the um, San Diego Club, the Associated Glider Clubs of Southern California. And at that time, the winches were not very effective and kind of scary. And then we did quite a bit of auto tows off the El Mirage Dry Lake up in the Mojave Desert. Uh, 
those were much more effective. I've gotten as high as 3,000 feet above the lake bed on an auto tow. That worked very well. And it convinced me that ground launch was extremely effective. We would typically get a soaring flight, you know, four out of five auto tows. We would get a contact a thermal and soar away. But it was also so cheap, you didn't really, if you showed up on a day when there really weren't any thermals, that didn't stop you from doing auto tows all day and still having fun. The, you know, finding lift was not all that, that important because you're only paying 50 cents a launch. Uh, to get in the air and you know a two or three thousand foot auto tow gives you a fairly decent short flight so that convinced me that ground launch was highly effective but at the time winches uh, pretty much scary junkyard things that uh, weren't very effective it wasn't until some years later where I really encountered some of the more modern winches that I began to realize the potential of winch launch where you could reduce the cost of a tow by, you know, 90 plus percent and still get the same amount of soaring in. And that has become more true as the cost of air tows has uh, skyrocketed in recent years, where the cost of winch launch has really not gone up very much. But the, um, you know, the price of an air tow in some areas is over $100 for a 2,000 foot tow. So that's really restricting the sport. We, we've got to the point where the grassroots level of our, you know, membership in the Soaring Society of America is really falling away because people come out and they look at a hundred dollar tow and they say, I can't afford this. And they go away, even though they, they're really potential glider pilots, they just can't see the cost of doing that. If we're going to grow, we have to rebuild the bottom end of the sport and winch launch has to play a big part of that just to bring the cost down to where they can't afford it. So how can we do that with, with winch launches? Are they getting cheaper? Well, they're not, they're not getting any cheaper. But the problem with getting people into winch launch is the, the upfront cost of a winch is fairly high, even though the per launch cost is very low. So that first rung on the ladder is fairly high. Um, a winch can cost as much or more than a tow plane. And a lot of people just don't see that uh, economic step as reasonable, even though just a back of the envelope financial calculations will show you that it very much is. I've had uh, a friend that went through extensive spreadsheet calculations and he showed that if you picked a ridiculous number like spending $200,000 for a winch, and you borrowed that money. If you could do a couple of thousand, a couple of thousand launches a year, and you charge fifteen dollars a launch, the net profit from that would retire that loan in two or three years, because the cost of providing a launch is in the order of three three dollars. And if you charge fifteen or twenty dollars for a launch, you've got a very large operating profit. And if you put that toward retiring the, the uh, which all you have to do is more winch launches and you pay it off, which is hard to argue against because that's the purpose of the whole thing. Just use it and it starts to get very, very cheap. So if you use a winch heavily, uh, the cost of the winch really doesn't matter in the long run because you can pay off 
almost anything, which is the reason why European clubs have very expensive winches. And in fact, they usually have more than one. I've simply discovered it's a really good deal and it's worth spending a lot of money on a winch to um, get a get one that uh, is is very efficient, very effective, and low low hassle uh, to operate. So, you know, that's the pattern you see in Europe. They still do air tow. They still do self-launch. But the winch is still the basic uh, way they get people into the sport and get people trained. Uh, typically, you know, students will learn winch launch first and then learn air tow. What do you think we could do here in the United States to get that trend going? Well, buying a European winch is problematic. They're big and they're heavy and they're, you know, they're industrial piece of equipment and getting it over here. I think the best way is for people to think in terms of building a winch. And I have a free set of plans to an electric winch for people who might want to do that. I think that, you know, there, there are a lot of scenarios about how you would do this, but the plans are free. Uh, but you take the plans, you can send them off to a professional uh, machine shop and they'll make all the parts and then the builder just has to bolt them together. But there are many different paths to doing that. Um, you could build all the parts yourself if you had access to the metalworking tools to do it. In that case, it would be pretty inexpensive. You could also hire a professional hired gun shop to build a whole winch for you, in which case that would be pretty expensive. Um, that's a choice how you do it. If someone decides to build it, it'd probably be worthwhile for them to uh, take a uh, metalworking course at a local community college. You know, take one semester. You'd learn what you have to know. But this is really coming on pretty hard because um, it seems strange to say it, but we're actually running out of tow planes. Um, all these old tow planes that have been fixed up to be used as tow planes um, are just not out there anymore. They've either been crashed or they've been shipped out of the country. So it's getting hard to uh, acquire a decent tow plane for anything less than a couple of hundred thousand dollars in this country. So the tow side is really getting pretty bad. If you look at the NTSB reports and other reports, you'll see that we're crashing between five and 10 tow planes a year. And there are only about 150 of them in service. So pretty hard to keep the fleet numbers up under those circumstances. Yeah, that's a lot of those crashes aren't reported. You know, I know of a dozen crashes last year that didn't make it into the NTSB database. So uh, part of that is we don't have airplane pilots that were trained in, in tail draggers. You've got a lot of people who are coming out to fly a Pawnee who have never really flown a tail dragger before. And that's a skill that doesn't come easily. If you didn't actually learn to fly in a tail dragger, you're very likely to make some bad mistakes in a tail dragger. Even with a lot of hours of experience, you still don't have the primacy of learning to fly a tail dragger. That's the reason we're crashing them. And even very, very experienced pilots are crashing them, which is kind of astonishing. There was one case in California where a Edwards Air Force Base test pilot crashed a Pawnee and was killed. He spun it in. You wouldn't expect that from a uh, highly experienced test pilot, but that's what happened. But that crisis of 
the shortage of tow planes, which you really see at contest, I typically every year will crew for Walt Rogers. So we've been going to the nationals for quite a number of years. And what I'm saying is you get a contest where you really ought to have 10 tow planes and you've got five and they're really in terrible shape. Many of them can't tow the heavier ballasted gliders. You've really in recent years seen that go downhill. People just don't have spare tow planes that they can let go to a contest in the middle of the summer. So you really see that. So I see winch launch is a very, very capable way of at the club level and maybe at the commercial operation level of supplanting and maybe replacing tow planes. The, the really the only key is to actually use it. Frustration that I have is that even clubs that have winches don't really use them very often. And some will only pull them out one day a year and go play with it. And one day a year playing with a winch is really a good way to get somebody killed because nobody has the uh, currency and experience. So if they would really use the winches, they would they would get the economic benefits. and would also have the um, institutional knowledge of how to operate a winch. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer to use winch launch. I, it surprises me that it's not more popular here. Well, you know, I've heard a lot of objections, and, uh, you know, I try to keep coming up with workarounds. The two that you hear most often is, well, have dozens of people running around on the airfield in the way, and you'll also hear they'll be dropping the rope all over everything. Well, a good winch launch operation doesn't do that. You don't have people running all over the field because you're organized. What they've seen before, and the reason they think that way, is these old winches using steel wire with a bunch of guys that didn't know how to do it were constantly breaking the wire, and they were out in the field finding the broken pieces and splicing them back together. So, yeah, they had a bunch of guys all over the field, plus the fact you'd have people that didn't know how to do it. So they were standing around in the way causing problems. But a well-run winch operation where people know what they're doing won't have that problem and especially if you're using these the modern synthetic fiber rope instead of steel cable uh, the stuff just doesn't break very often clubs have gotten as many as 6,000 launches before they got the first break on the uh, on the rope which uh, you know really makes it an efficient operation and if you think about it and I've run winch launch operations this way as I'm going to describe it where you basically have a glider pilot, you have a wing runner, and you have a winch operator. And that's it. That's the only people on the field. The wing runner can go get the rope and pull it back. Or, in some cases, with some winches, you can set the winch and retrieve uh, configuration, and the winch operator can pull the cable back. So you only have three people on the field counting the glider pilot. And that's about the same as you're going to have on the field with a uh, air tow operation. You know, a glider pilot, a wing runner, and a tow pilot. So you really don't need a crowd of people out there, and you don't need to be dropping a rope all over everything. Good operating procedure with a winch is to always pull the rope all the way to the winch before it hits the ground right after the glider releases. As soon as it releases, you reel a rope in and let the parachute drop 20 or 30 feet in front of the winch. So it's never on the airfield. And again, with the modern ropes, you can do that thousands of times without a problem if we can back up a little bit when did your aviation journey get started uh 1959 uh, i was a college student in california 
friend of mine wanted to go out to Lake Elsinore because he was interested in parachuting. Um, when I got there with him, I spotted a um, LK-10 that was available for rides and instruction. So I forgot all about the parachuting thing and went over and took a ride in the glider. I'd actually known a little bit about soaring. Um, I grew up in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And just before I left, I was a member of the model airplane club there. And a couple of guys um, showed up to show movies of uh, the Sierra Wave Project with Larry Edgar and Wolfgang Klumper. And they really wanted to get a glider club started at Alamogordo, which happened a year or two after I left to go to college in California. So I'd already had the experience of uh, talking to a couple of guys and watching movies. So I knew what you know, what a spectacular sport it was. When I saw the LK at Lake Elsinore, I said, I got to do that. Got a ride, said, cool, I, I got to learn to fly. So I started taking lessons there. And many people won't believe this, but I was soloed in the LK after six flights and th- about three hours of total flight time. Oh, amazing. Um, I think probably I'm very lucky to be alive, but... I continued, and I realized right away at the beginning that this is something you want to be very good at, otherwise you're going to get killed. And so I spent a lot of time with a lot of extra instruction, learning all the fine details of flying, you know, uh, aerobatics and cross-country and things where I wanted to be trained to a level that was higher than I actually expected to fly. So I went to a lot of troubles to do that. And same, got my uh, airplane rating, multi-engine instrument rating, commercial, and so forth um, at about the same time. But it, all along, I always said, you know, you've got to respect this, and you've got to take every opportunity to become a better pilot. Otherwise, you're going to get bit if you don't. Like you say, aviation is something you got to respect. Did your aviation include a career being that you took the powered as well, or, or was it all? Uh, it was all basically a hobby. You know, I did fly for a number of years at commercial glider operations, uh, doing instruction and taking people for rides. I worked at uh, Southwest Soaring with uh, Williams and worked at uh, Mile High Gliding at Boulder. So I guess that would be my professional flying career. We'll be right back with more from our guest, Bill Daniels, after this. Hi, it's Natalie Flygirl Kelly. And Fly Alyssa. We are female pilots, aviation lovers, and hosts of the podcast, Cockpits and Cocktails. We use this podcast as a way of sharing our journeys in aviation and allowing other females in aviation to share their amazing, inspiring stories as well. Please give us a listen and join us for this fun, informative podcast with adventure and humor weaved in. Blue skies. Cheers. What has been maybe one of your most memorable flights that stand out? There's been a lot of them to choose from. I was the test pilot on Jim Marsky's Pioneer 1A Flying Wing, and that was a lot of fun. And then once, you know, I owned a high-performance glider, it was always amazing to... um, do long cross countries over the mountains where you, you have fabulous lift and it's easy to find and spectacular scenery. What area of the, of the country was that that you did most of your mountain flying? Colorado, New Mexico. 
you know, that's a totally different environment flying up over the high mountains. And if you've flown in lowland, flatland conditions, you really don't understand how that works. But you're flying in a, a vertical layer that's only about 4,000 feet high. The tops of the mountains are about 14,000 feet, the higher peaks anyway. And you've got the 18,000-foot um, floor of Class A airspace. So you're working in a what many people would think is a fairly narrow vertical band. And you're also over an area where the only land-out options are really airports. There really aren't any fields in the mountains to land in. There may be a few, but for the most part, any land-out is going to be on a runway at a public airport. And these are typically about 40 nautical miles apart. So you have to uh, be very careful that you um, keep, I like to keep two of them within gliding range at all times. And you get in the mountains, you sometimes get thunderstorms that form very rapidly. And that can block your access to your um, emergency landing field. So you've got to have another one in the other direction to move away from the storm. Did you ever have to land out besides oh, yeah. the airports? Like, did you did you make it back to the airport? Uh, most of my landouts were at airports, but I've landed off field a number of times. Um, particularly back in the early days when I was flying a 126. As they say, you know, one 126s are very very good at landing in small fields, which is which is fortunate because they do a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I put down a number of different fields. They were never a problem. Uh, most often, you were able to um, get the glider derigged and on the trailer and out of there before anybody showed up. So really wasn't uh, a problem. What has been one of the strangest or coolest things maybe you've seen from the cockpit of a glider? Oh, being in a mountain wave at uh, you know 30,000 feet and having Sutter call you and ask you if they could run some heavy traffic below you through your wave window. And you're sitting oh. there in a wave, and you're watching airliners pulling contrails going below you. Wow. And you realize you're actually in a box in the sky that has a bottom to the box. And, uh, you know, you have your wave window, but it's no longer just a vertical column. It's a box, you know, it has a floor. And you're, they ask you if you can stay there, and if you say yes, then uh, they'll use your airspace below you to get traffic through. I've had that happen two or three times. Um the controllers seem to recognize through your voice communications that you understand the system. If you're a uh, instrument-rated pilot, you're using the right terminology, and they they realize you know what's going on, so they can work with you in uh, other ways. And there have been times when uh, you know I've been cleared out of the wave window, you know, above 18,000 feet. Simply because the controller just says, "Okay, we'll just move your wave window over a little bit, and then we'll move you." on down so very reasonable um if you do your part they're usually very reasonable in working with you and as long as i'm on that subject i had another experience where again i was down in alamogordo for a uh, a fly-in meet and that's a really good soaring area and they have good wave there so i fell to me to call el paso uh center to open the wave window so I called him and told him we'd like to get it open for the day. And the response surprised me. He says, okay, how many days would you like the wave window open? <laughs> and, in, and in Colorado, they usually give it to you for a few hours. And I said, well, we have to meet through Sunday. He said, well, if you take it through Monday, will that be okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, we had the wave window open 24 hours a day for like four days. Oh, my. Wow. The... Um, 
and the reason for that is uh, White Sands Muscle Range um, goes from the surface to outer space, and it's about 150 miles north to south, and it blocks all east-west traffic. You know, nobody flies through that, you know, restricted airspace. So you're not going to have any airliner traffic going east-west through your wave window because they can't get through the uh, restricted area of White Sands Muscle Range. They have to go around the north end or the south end. So you've got that nice little protected area down there where you've got virtually zero high-altitude traffic, unless it's military traffic, which is in that area. Yeah, that can all be an interesting experience to uh, do that. And now for our Soaring Safety segment with previous guest Ash the Explorers from episode 54, Too Low, Too Slow. Be a confident pilot. Always do the checks step by step. Have a checklist. And... Please do not memorize the check procedures because eventually we will forget it one day. And we have to often practice emergency maneuvers like what happens if a rope breaks and we have to recreate those scenarios and always do some outside landing, try to make the scenario and try to practice a lot. And the most important thing, do not stop flying and fly often and practice more. Take participate even in flying events if the time and money permits you. Thank you, Ash. If you'd like to sponsor our Soaring Safety segment, you can contact me at chuck at soaringthesky.com. And now back to our guest, Bill Daniels. Uh, I haven't flown wave in quite a few years. Um, people have to uh, respect that, uh, especially as you get older, because your lungs are not as efficient. You know, all the high-altitude oxygen rolls are designed for an 18-year-old uh, in good shape, basically a military individual. At high altitude, if you don't have 100% lung function, you may not get enough oxygen into your bloodstream, even if you're breathing 100% oxygen. You do have to respect that. Wave flying is physically a very demanding uh, environment. And so you should be in shape when you're doing that kind of flying. You should, and you should have very good equipment. Again, if you're older, you can always fly with a younger pilot uh, in a two-seater. But uh, if you're going up there by yourself, you know, above 20,000 feet, you've got less than a minute useful consciousness if the oxygen system quits working. And you may not be aware that you're not getting enough oxygen until uh, you pass out. I had a, a Navy uh, aeromedical officer tell me that in their test, the first uh, clinical symptom of hypoxia with many of their young pilots was unconsciousness. Mm. He's doing fine one minute and he just passes out. Oh, wow. And that's kind of scary when you're thinking about flying, a sol- flying alone on a glider at high altitudes. Yeah, absolutely. We had a pilot at Boulder, a very nice uh, guy, but uh, he crashed and uh, fortunately he had a GPS tracker on board, so we got to look at his uh, flight path. He was at about 27,000 feet, and it was apparent that suddenly nobody was flying the glider. And the glider just spiraled all the way down to the surface as it drifted downwind and crashed to the south of Boulder and out of the mountains. But uh, Mm. apparently he just lost consciousness. No real uh, explanation for why, but it's pretty clear what happened. Yeah. What is your club doing there to promote soaring? The Soaring Society of Boulder is fairly active but their their major focus is on cross-country flying so they've got a lot of private owners 
uh, who fly contest and fly cross country. But they also have some very good instructors and they have some very good trainers. They use K-21s for training, which helps a lot. I mean, it's very, very clear when you watch an operation that using something like a K-21 for basic training really is much more attractive to the beginning student. You know, people come out to take a ride in a K-21, they're very much more likely to say, I want to, I want to continue this than somebody who takes a ride in, say, a 233. You know, if you, if you watch, you can see that difference. It really, it really does make a difference. So they use good equipment, and they've got, you know, like a Duskus uh, CS for the members to fly. They've got a DG505, a number of very nice gliders to fly. It's an all-glass all fleet now. Oh, very nice. Yeah, that's a nice, nice birds. If you had some advice to give someone how they could be a better and safer pilot, what would you tell them? Never pass up an opportunity to get more training. You know, the airlines have a six-month retraining schedule where all the flight crews come in every six months for some, at least some simulator time. What I would do is two things. I would do that same pattern and just take a flight with a flight instructor every six months. I know the, F, the FARs only require you to do that every two years, but you can very easily do that every six months, um, and that helps. And the other thing is just keep adding ratings. No matter what rating you get, it makes you a better pilot. So if you're a glider pilot and you're a private glider pilot, then go get your commercial glider pilot. It'll force you to go back to the books and uh, read some stuff and take some flight training. If you're a commercial pilot, get your instructor rating. You know, there's more you can do. If If you're an instructor glider, then go get an airplane rating. The number of ratings you can get is almost, you know, unlimited. But every one you get will make you a better pilot, no matter what it is. Maybe a balloon rating or, you know, an instrument rating. It still make you a better pilot. So keep training is the real key. Is uh, don't, don't assume, as uh, many people do, that uh, they've checked all the boxes. Now they're a pilot. They don't have anything else to do. One of the horrifying things I heard as a flight instructor was the guy tell me that he didn't want to be a really good pilot. He just wanted to go play with gliders. Oh, and, you know, I told him that he had made it onto my short list of people who probably were going to die in a glider. Uh, yeah. Wow. And but a lot of people, whether they express it as clearly as that, they still have that attitude. You know, I my training is over with. I've done that. I've checked the boxes. Now it's time to just go play. That is a, an attitude which, um, you know, I've lived long enough and I've flown long enough, you know, over 50 years of flying. And I've seen that attitude and I've also seen the crashes and I, I see a correlation. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, keep flying, you know, but fly with instructors. You know, instructors aren't all equal. You can fly with a lot of different people and I recommend you do that. But um, anybody you fly with, you'll learn something from. Bill, is there anyone you would like to give a shout out yeah, I get a couple there that I enjoy. One of which is Jim Marsky, and I would highly recommend his new book, The Wing and I. Uh, it tells the story of his development of the uh, his series of uh, flying wings. That would be very well worthwhile for anybody. Add that book to your library. And the other one, other person I really enjoy was uh, Kathy Fosha, who I had the pr- privilege of uh, instructing at least a little bit of her career. It's great fun to see her doing international team flying now. When I remember her as a 18-year-old student. Well, that must be cool watching someone go through the training and then end up being where they are now. Yep. 
it's fun. Last I had a chance to see her was at the SSA convention. She and the other girls on the team put in a heck of a show at the uh, at the dinner. Well, they had a good year. Yeah. Yeah, congrats to them for sure. Bill, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. I appreciate your time. Appreciate you sharing your stories. Can I add one thing? Absolutely. What, what did you like to add? Well, if anybody is interested in a uh, set of free winch plans, contact me and I'll link them into it. Let them look through the plans and see if it's something they want to do. That sounds like an amazing opportunity for somebody. And I myself would like to see some more winch toes. It, it makes perfect sense to me after you explained it. And I am a little, I, I, I guess the same question you have. I, I am wondering why more clubs haven't done that, but I guess it is the initial cost. But if you look at the big picture, it just seems like it would make a whole lot more sense. Well, and also, if I might wind up with this one, the experience that people have out there is with the old winches, the old gear line winches, where they were a lot of work to operate. You know, they were a single drum winch. So every time you launched it, somebody had to drive sometimes a mile to the other end of the airport, get the rope, and pull it back a mile. So every time you launch a glider, you had to do a two-mile round trip with a car or a golf cart or whatever. And people just got tired of that. It was just too much work to um, recycle the winch for a launch. But a two-drum winch cuts the amount of work in half. So you're only going down once every two launches to pull two ropes back. It makes it a much more relaxed uh, launch operation. But anyway, um, yeah, if you want to look at the plans, contact me. I'll be happy to walk you through the plans or just link you into it and let you go through it on your own. Okay, I can put your email in the show notes there if that's fine with you. Sure. That would be great. Thank you for that. Take care, Bill. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for hanging out with us for another episode here on Soaring the Sky. I have put that in the show notes. A great opportunity Bill Daniels has given somebody free plans to build a winch that's some good stuff there so just check that on the show notes get a hold of him thank you for joining us and thank you for joining us on social media a lot of you have signed up on our soaring the sky podcast on facebook we're also on instagram love to have you share some pictures on there love to see what everyone is up to now that a lot of us are flying again back at our clubs and speaking of social media michelle has all that info for you next until next week have a great week Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you right here on Soaring the Sky. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.